Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. Uh, Today we're going to have a special episode. We're going to cover some news. Uh, And then after a break, we're going to turn the mic on the co-host. We have some questions that we're going to ask them uh, that I think can be helpful for essentially everybody. There was some travel going on. In fact, we caught up with Phil uh, on the road. So um, he's going to be recording a few things from the car. And again, here's some of the questions if you want to tune in after the news. Uh, after the break, uh, things like, uh, what was your worst moment in your training career? Uh, What was an aha moment for you? And then could others actually apply that? Um, What was holding you back when you felt like maybe you weren't making the kind of speedy progress that you wanted? Uh, What's your best advice As far as what you've received, so we're going to ask the host, what's the best advice you ever received? Uh, A personal habit that you might have that contributes to your success. Uh, We'll ask each co-host for an internet resource tip. So what's good online? Uh, And then what fires you up? What fires you up now at this stage in your career? So hopefully that will be insightful. I thought these are some good questions. I sort of harvested them from uh, podcasts and other genres. Uh, It's sort of a lightning round, except we're going to let people... Uh, ramble a bit and not be so lightning fast. Uh, So some news first, and then we will get to the co-hosts turning the mic on the co-hosts in the topic of the day. All right, but first let's get to the piece of research uh, news, if you will, for the day. Strength and Muscle Sport News. This is a paper by Joe Gordon and colleagues Comparisons in the Recovery Response from Resistance Exercise Between Young and Middle-Aged Men. Those of you who have been with us for a long time, you know, of course, we're middle-aged, the co-host here. We've competed before. Phil still competes uh, in powerlifting and all manner of things, actually. Uh, And so I'm curious to see what the physiology says. This is from the Journal of Strength Conditioning Research. Uh, The purpose of the study was to compare the effects of a bout of high-volume resistance exercise uh, on the lower body. And then the resulting inflammation and muscle damage and recovery between young adults uh, and middle-aged guys. Uh, The young adults were on average about 22 years old. The older guys were about 47 years old. So pretty close to what the co-hosts of Iron Radio are like with this middle-aged group. Um, They did use isokinetic resistance exercise. Uh, One of the critiques of this, just to sort of lay down some limitations, is... uh, Typically, these devices have a spinning component inside, and you can only contract at a certain speed of contraction. So they can be handy for slow grinding uh, analyses versus really explosive ones where you have to actually kind of keep up with the spinning of the wheel. If there's a critique, it's that it's not super real world in the sense that usually you're not forced to contract at at a particular speed. But again, science is reductionist, and I'll talk more about that in a minute. So they have to do something. 
so they had these guys do eight sets of 10 repetitions in the lower body. They put a minute of rest in between, and then they got some different markers, performance markers. And again, this is where the isokinetic devices can be handy. So they looked at peak uh, torque, average torque, even the rate of torque development. So think about like uh, strength and speed strength, if you will. They also did some blood sampling, uh, again, uh, sort of at baseline, uh, about you know, 30, 60 minutes afterwards, two hours later, and then I think key at 24 and 48 hours, right? Because so much of this is delayed onset uh, muscle soreness and damage. There's some initial, initial mechanical trauma when you uh, lift very explosively, but then there's a sort of a secondary delayed metabolic micro trauma or damage where sort of white blood cells move in and cause inflammation and, and things like that. Uh, the results revealed no differences actually uh, in performance, any of the performance variables, even the explosiveness between the young and old as far as their recovery, right? So when people get really sore, and I don't see any information, what I have here that they measured actual subjective soreness, but when you do a lot of eccentric exercise, not so much like this isokinetic stuff, but you get really sore, you're probably 10 or 15% weaker uh, for lack of a better term, over a period of about 24 hours. I've measured this myself. Usually the strength is back by about 48 hours. But anyway, so they didn't see performance differences uh, after this high volume training. Uh, and then they looked at blood, their blood work and they looked at the different tissue damage markers, classic ones like creatine kinase uh, or myoglobin. These are things that they should be safely doing their job inside muscle cells, but they spill into the bloodstream uh, when the, your, the, your muscles are essentially tore up, right? There's micro trauma, not, not injury, but, you know, micro injury uh, from the training bout. They looked at C-reactive protein and interleukin-6 also as indicators of inflammation. Uh, the results suggested that there were no differences in performance or these damage and inflammation uh, markers. I find that very interesting. Uh, they did sort of concede that there were baseline differences in muscle performance at the beginning of the study. Um, I'm presuming the younger guys were either stronger or more explosive than the 47-year-olds. Uh, if that was the case, then I think we have to be careful because maybe the younger guys were able to rock themselves a little bit more because of their high performance output compared to the uh, older guys. I'm not sure that's true, but it does say there were baseline differences. So, that's something we have to keep in mind. Again, science is reductionist. I said I would come around to this. I also said there was no real measurement of delayed onset muscle soreness. So that subjective rating, like on a seven scale of how rocked you feel. So uh, again, they're looking at performance and very objective enzymatic markers and uh, cytokine markers of damage and inflammation. So it's very interesting that there weren't differences. I would also like to see stacked into this. And again, I'd have to pull the full paper to see if they mention this, but if there's some other subjective ratings, um, because typically you'll hear the middle-aged guys say, oh, I'm, I got more sore or I stayed sore longer, uh, or I had joint stiffness and pain. Again, some subjective psychological things I think would help add to this picture. Uh, as opposed to just the, you know, uh, enzymes spilling into the blood or the, the performance changes across this two-day period or so. Uh, so anyway, interesting stuff uh, that at least with these markers, uh, not much difference in physical recovery and performance kind of recovery 
between the young guys and the middle-aged guys. So cool stuff. Thank you, Joe Gordon and colleagues there. Um, interesting paper. We'll keep you posted on more of this sort of thing because as as the hosts get older, of course, we um, are interested in this kind of stuff maybe a bit more. So having said that, we're not going to do a lot of mail-in news because I, we're going to go to the uh, break, uh, early show break in this particular weekend. Again, lots of travel going on. I was at a charity event up near Milwaukee. Uh, interesting uh, guy up there I met who's a Starbucks engineer. Uh, so that's kind of cool to be able to uh, do something charitable and then meet interesting people and talk shop and whatnot. Like I said, Phil's on the road for like 11 hours. So we're catching up with him. Uh, Dr. Nelson's on the road. So I'll pose these questions. I'll try to do them in the order that I shared earlier. Uh, and we'll see what each of the co-hosts have to say about these sort of self-revealing things that might be instructive in some way uh, for others. So we'll go to break and we'll be back in just a moment. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once per week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. (laughs) 
Okay, folks, we're back. I'm going to pose each question, uh, turning the mic on the different co-hosts of Iron Radio. Uh, I'll start with the first one. The question is, what was your worst moment in training? Uh, I What immediately jumps to mind for me, I think, is when I tore my right triceps. I pulled the triceps tendon right off the olecranon, massive effusion, right, bruising and swelling from my right wrist to my nipple on that side, just black and blue, uh, went to the emergency room, uh, literally was sent home with some ibuprofen. Not kidding. Um, of course, I knew I needed an MRI scan. I'm not stupid. I had my doctorate by then in exercise physiology. Uh, I could still extend my arm, weirdly, um, with a little bit of strength, but obviously not maximal strength. Um, the actual event was very weird. It's, it, it was not a pop like you often hear people talk. It sounded and felt more like tearing a wet washcloth, sort of a grinding, tearing. And I was doing heavy hit heads, which was stupid, uh, lying skull crushers, right? Lying triceps extensions. Luckily, I had a doc student um, spotting me or I would have eaten uh, that easy curl bar. So it's sort of an isolation movement. You don't put 130, 140 pounds on something like that. I mean, I shouldn't, I'm not a big person. Um, and that shut me down right? There were a couple of predisposing factors that I'm actually working into a case study that I'd like to publish eventually. Um, lots of caffeine involved. I was sort of detrained and things like that. I think I was able to generate enough force to hurt myself. And um, yeah, the subsequent period of wearing a very specific, you know, um, arm device, uh, the, the rehab, I mean, the Percocet and the kind of crap that happens immediately after surgery, not being able to lift, uh, weirded me out quite a bit. I've, I was all, I've always been a little freaked out. Phil will just kind of get right back into stuff and sort of bank on the fact that those sutures are going to hold. Uh, I didn't want to do that. Um, I kind of was a good boy, and I waited the sort of several weeks before I started uh, training again uh, in the gym, you know, things that actually involved the triceps. Um, I guess it worked out though, because wow, that elbow has no pain. Now I still have some tendonitis and tendinosis on the other side. So the robo elbow is, is kicking just fine. But that was, that was a real low point. Uh, it may have actually played a role in me later when I recovered competing one last time, just to prove to myself, uh, that I could, I, I could do that. So let's, let's go to Phil then next. And we're going to ask him about his worst moment. My worst moment in the gym. Oh, there's a lot of them. No, uh, I, I'm going to go pretty recent on this. I would say the worst, the ultimate worst moment I had would be, what was it, like six, seven months after my hip replacement. Um, we had been killing it, you know. I was like hitting PRs. Like even day one after hip replacement, I was hitting PRs. They gave me like my gold star uh, in PT and like let me walk by myself anyways. And, and things, so really kicking butt. I had hit 640 at this point on a deadlift. You know, one of the big things that we were doing is had to train myself to walk again and put weight right on that, that left leg that had been bad for years. And again, to lift on that leg again. So it, because I'd lifted so long, pretty much almost one-legged um, with most of my weight sitting on that, that one good leg. So I, I was going up and deadlift and I hit 635 and just smoked it. It was super easy. So I was like, okay, we'll go for a small, 
five pound PR, so I take that jump to 645. I've been taking these nice little jumps after I hit reasonable weight, get in the 600s or whatnot. Um, so just gonna go for a five pound PR, call it good that day. And I, I tug on it, start pulling, make it about mid shin, and what we'd been training goes out the window. And my body just shifts everything onto the right leg away from that, that hip replacement. And so here I am at about about knee level now with 645 on one leg. And that hamstring just pops. It snaps off the, the hip. Uh, it didn't hurt. I just knew something weird happened. So I set it down and kind of grabbed my hamstring a bit. And uh, that would probably be the ultimate low. Uh, just because I was in such a high, you know, I was in this high. It's like, man, I'm doing great. I'm killing this thing. I'm gonna come back in record time, and then I get kicked with that. And that's that's also of all the recoveries I've had. That coming one from getting that hamstring reattached is is the ultimate worst. So I would rather have like four hip replacements than one of those hamstrings. But uh, yeah, that'd be the lowest. Hey, what's going on, Doctor Mike T. Nelson here. Answering some questions in our little round table. I'm recording this from Seattle. Hopefully you don't hear too many of the trains and buses and everything else going by. I was out here presenting for the Ancestral Health Society and staying in the dorms at the University of Washington, uh, which has been pretty fun. So, uh, first question, worst moment in training, aha moment, and could others apply it? For better or worse, I've had lots of injuries in the past. Luckily, I haven't had too many bigger ones lately. Most of them were involved from playing broom ball, uh, mountain biking, uh, some minor stuff from kiteboarding, and just snowboarding, blew up my ankle, that kind of stuff. Probably the worst one was pulling both of my hip flexors and my whole groin area in the gym. This is, oh man, it's going back to, did I do that? 2006, I think, so quite a while ago. And what happened was I was doing, you know, at the time, what I would considering heavier deadlifts for me at the time, which was only 315. Uh, but again, I guess heavy is always relative. And Hip flexors had always felt pretty tight. The front part of my hip felt tight. I was doing stretching and some other stuff and eh, didn't really think much about it. I thought, oh, I just need to try harder and suck it up and stop being a, a big pussy about all these other reasons. It seems my body doesn't want to lift, which worked for a little while. And you can absolutely see where this is going. So the one day did some deadlifts. Felt pretty good. For whatever reason, I thought, well, I should get on the treadmill. I need to do some more conditioning. And I'll do incline sprints, because I read an article that that's a pretty cool thing to do. So did that. It was pretty brutal. Left the gym. And even just on my way out walking, I was like, oh, man, this doesn't... I don't know. Something doesn't feel very good, but ah, no big deal. It's probably because I trained hard. I haven't done any incline sprints for some time, get home. I was like, man, this doesn't, uh, doesn't feel very good. But the thought that I had injured something was not really in my brain because there wasn't really that moment where you could kind of feel something snap like an acute injury. 
And what I realized later is that sometimes in the groin area, for whatever reason, maybe it's a, lots of blood flow or maybe I took too much pre-workout and my pain threshold's all screwball or, or whatever, um, you could have some type of injuries or strains and you, you may not know it right away. So fast forward, go to bed, wake up the next day, and I can't even barely get out of bed. Um, the interesting part was I was supposed to do a fundraiser uh, riding a bike. So I was riding my little pedal bike from the Twin Cities area up to Duluth. So it's about a little bit over 150 miles over two days. And it was a fundraiser for the MS Society. And I felt really bad about, oh, man, I don't know if I want to do this. Oh, my hip flexors are killing me. But I'm like, I wonder if I can still get on a bike. So what I found was that if I laid the bike all the way down, I picked up one leg if I leaned against a wall and pulled the bike up underneath me, I could lean against a wall and pull up my other foot by literally taking both my hands, stick my foot on the pedal, and I would push down and I could kind of fling my other leg onto the pedal. Once I was pedaling, it wasn't too bad, right? Because you're just pushing down. I didn't have clips or anything, so I'm not really pulling up at all. But stopping becomes super interesting. So I would have to slow down as much as I could, keeping my feet level on the pedals, and then I'd basically kind of fling myself forward and with my calves and land with my feet flat and then go through the reverse process of kind of shimming the bike all the way down standing over the bike, leaning against something, and grabbing my leg and moving my foot over my bike. Needless to say, I ended up doing the two days, and it got worse and worse and worse. Go figure. And go back to the, the dock the next day when I come back, and I tell him this whole story of what I did. And he looks at me like I'm just a complete idiot, which is probably not that far off the mark. He tells me that, yeah, you basically strain pulled, whatever, everything in that area. So fast forward through about three months of walking around like a, a penguin who had retired. Uh, driving, I couldn't do for quite a while because you can't violently pick up your uh, leg from the gas pedal to the brake. And getting in and out of a car was pretty painful. Uh, the other part I didn't realize, rolling over at night, pretty painful also. So the takeaway from my wonderful injury story is one, it was pretty amazing for me to realize in a sort of harsh way how connected the body is. And, you know, we kind of tend to think of muscles as performing a singular function. And we forget that they do all sorts of other things. Like I would have never guessed that rolling over in the middle of the night is a lot of psoas hip flexor activation. Seems pretty damn obvious to me now, but I wasn't thinking of that at the time. And uh, to do that, I actually would play around with the sheets underneath and I'd pull the sheet all the way uh, through the bottom to kind of drag my leg through so I didn't have to pick it up. But uh, the takeaway that I got from that is one, don't be an idiot and listen to your body. If your body is telling you something is painful, you should probably listen to it and, and stop doing whatever it was you were doing. Um, two, you should think at least a little bit about the biomechanics of what you're doing for a new exercise. So in my case, doing um, 
a treadmill and putting at an incline or even just treadmill in general and not doing any warm-up, which I'm not sure in my case would have made a difference, going right to a high intensity and assuming I would be fine, even though my hips were feeling pretty tight. So think about what happens briefly in a treadmill. Instead of you pushing your leg, such as doing like a hill sprint, your leg is basically getting violently thrown into extension where you're driving the leg behind your body. Um, knowing that my hip flexors are pretty tight in the front, I should have probably figured out that that's not going to be a great exercise. So that's what I learned from that, and hopefully that little lesson can help you out. Okay, so Mike sort of combined the worst moment. He mentioned some tips and personal experience with the aha moment. Let's get to that um, aha moment concept. I'll offer mine, and then we'll get to Phil as well. For me, off the top of my head, I think there were two aha moments. One was fairly early on in my 20s, and that's that you have to eat like a bigger man if you want to be a bigger man, or woman for that matter, but I'm a man, so I'm talking about myself. Um, I watched certain guys in my local area, and there's a lot of good gyms, bodybuilding power gyms in Ohio, many people know that, uh, but I watched a lot of guys year after year uh, that tried to stay lean, and they never got any bigger. I started doing sort of bulking off-season type things. You know, some people find that's odd. Like, why would you spend all that time putting weight on and then just peel it right back off? But, of course, the idea is body composition. So you're adding muscle mass when you eat extra calories. We've talked about that on the show before. And I eventually just blew past. I just blew past some of these guys. Um Literally, ultimately, by about 50, 60 pounds, they were still like 160-pound guys. They always were more or less ripped. You know, they looked athletic, but I wanted to be a bodybuilder, as in bodybuilder, not body waster. Uh, so I started eating more, uh, more carbs, more fats, just everything, more of everything. And I think that was uh, one of the big aha moments. I think later was... Uh, my decision to compete seriously. I had fooled around in a few natural competitions when I was younger, uh, and I sort of, I just didn't throw my whole heart and soul into it. So I, I sort of had this, you know, light bulb, fl dim bulb flicker on that. Say, sign your name a year out. Like, go see a show. You know, make sure it's one that you think you can do well in. If you're new, I don't think I would start out of the gate with a huge national qualifier physique kind of competition, something like that. Uh, but once you've picked a show and you know what you're getting yourself into, give yourself a whole year. Half of that time I would spend essentially bulking. The other half, literally a nice slow 20 to 24 week uh, dieting um, progression Right as as I got leaner and leaner, pulling out a little bit more carbs mostly uh, every few weeks, adding in a little bit more pre-breakfast cardio kind of thing it was a pretty traditional approach. Uh, but a competition gives that higher purpose to a lot of people. Now I'm a lot like Fortress, and he and I have talked about this. Just training, it's a blast. I love just the body part split, training year to year, devastating body parts, and then getting back to them about five, even seven days later. Uh, and that kind of thing. Uh, so I love the training. And now that I'm a little older, I'm kind of back to that in many ways. But putting your name on the dotted line in a very calculated way, 
uh, and throwing your whole heart and soul into something, even if you don't place, uh, it's going to be a personal record. And I think that's how you have to kind of think about this, especially once I started competing in open competitions. I had no control over some guy coming in a head shorter than me, weighed just as much, top of the light heavyweight class, you know, 198, barely making the weight. But, you know, skin like pink cellophane, like I've said before, growth hormone and thyroid and making decisions that I, I just didn't want to make. And that's okay. I mean, they, guys like that look incredible. I, I don't, don't begrudge them a damn thing. But the point is, I progressed and I was able to be competitive, you know, always placing as a finalist, sometimes in a lineup of 20 guys or more. Uh, that was because I did it right, right? I did my homework. I looked at the, the playing field. I had a whole year to prepare, uh, and I would actually compete. Now, because I'm not the kind of guy who's popping anadrol tablets and I can't just completely change my physique from one year to the next or growth factors or whatever, and again, n no judgments, but for me, it takes a few years. So then every few years, signing your name, repeatedly applying that courage test essentially to yourself. I mean, if you want to know how you fare under fire, Stand in front of a thousand people at some of these bigger shows uh, in your underwear and we'll see, you know, you'll see proved yourself that you can handle yourself under fire like that. So uh, one was eat like a bigger person and the other was compete, damn it. So let's go see what Phil says. My aha moment somebody could learn from. Oh, it uh, probably... And this thing that I try and teach people right from the bat is uh, basically I made it to a, a pretty good level of strength. We're talking like pulling 675. I was I don't remember what my squat was, but you know I was a, I was fairly good. I think I pulled 680 uh, to win uh, the worlds, and I was in a lightweight class, uh, but. Um, and then I was stuck. I just got completely stuck there for two and a half, three years. Until, and basically up until that point, I had been training just, it was just go to the gym and, and go balls out. You know, I did a lot of like old school conjugate stuff. A lot of max effort all the time. The things like that, doing my own variation of that um, from what I could read. And then uh, I changed it up and started reading a lot, did, did a lot of research and uh, talking to anybody I could. And I changed up my training philosophy a bit and started trying something new about, um, instead of going in and killing myself, like looking at, I'm going max effort till I turn purple every day, to, uh, okay, let's go in and crush weights. You know, weights I can do. And uh, basically it's kind of what I tell people about it. We're trying to slowly raise up that 80% all the time. Like you don't need to be under mind and body crushing weights every session. There's a time and place for that, but it's usually short. And the rest of the time, we're really trying to crush every rep, every set. Um, and you know, you're looking to kick the weights butt, not have it kick yours. So that would probably be it. You know, and backing down on percentages a bit. Um, leaving the gym with maybe a little left in the tank. Like you're not just totally dead. Um, recovering but uh, yeah learning how to manage that and especially as you get stronger I think it gets it gets more important I think early on there's a learning curve and I think that early on going going to the brink 
it's not my battle with my kids because at some point you have to learn that you have to learn that breaking point like what you can do before you snap because at the beginning everybody's mentally weak but uh you know from what i've seen even working with new people we, we can teach that uh slowly over time and we'll get better results even early on if we teach them how to how to kill the weights instead of it killing them you know really changing that mindset to you know people have them a mindset of uh, i'm gonna go on the weight and kick my ass and i try and get them to come the opposite okay here's what we're doing now your goal is to go in there and own it and if you can do all this and walk out and still feel good you just won you know basically you went in there again your opponent today is those weights on that sheet of paper and those exercises if you can go in there and do those and kill them you can walk out happy um and but the progress over time goes up greatly in my opinion all righty i think we've sort of addressed uh that idea of what was holding us back uh in some of the previous answers so let's get to best advice what's the best advice that you've ever received this is a tough one for me personally. I've learned a lot in conversations. Uh, Phil's full of great in the gym kind of tips, uh, even biomechanics and all that sort of stuff. Uh, on the academic side, I've gotten great advice, specifically things like curiosity is actually more important than in intellect, intelligence in many ways uh, when it comes to lifelong getting ahead. Um, I got a great piece of advice from Chris Shugart once at, at Biotest, editor there, of course, content manager and whatnot, um, which was tell a story, right? Include yourself, tell a story. Don't just try to be too boring as an educator when you write an article. Uh, so tell a story. Um, another thing, which I've really sort of gotten this advice through watching people, not just what they say, but what they do, and that's own it, right? Like for years when I was writing T.C. Luoma, uh, again, at Biotest and Testosterone.com, he used to say, call me the warrior nerd because, you know, I do this nerdy stuff on the side, but I love to go into the gym and get really aggressive and, uh, you know, sort of tear it up. And in my academic world, that doesn't always sit well. It's sort of a Jekyll and Hyde thing, but I started to own it. So students would find a picture of me competing in Teehee, and I just own it. Uh, so that was something I learned by watching people, I think. I would also point people to, Arnold's, Arnold Schwarzenegger, his six rules of success. There, That is golden. That is gold. Um, you know, trust yourself. You know, don't, don't fall in with the naysayers, you know, things like that. Break some rules. Just great stuff. I would go check that out free on YouTube. That's also sort of my internet resource, one of them, if I would jump ahead to that. Um, one thing that Arnold didn't say that I think if I had a chance to tell students in the future as far as maybe a, a seventh rule, find a mentor. Whether you're doing something mentally or physically, uh, you can't be everything. You can't be an expert in everything. And I think finding a mentor helps keep people from reinventing the wheel or taking years and years to come across sort of your aha moment. So that's my sort of long-winded explanation for uh, best advice. Let's see what Phil says. The best advice I ever received. That's a tough one. Because uh, I've gotten a lot of advice from a lot of great people. I don't know. I This probably isn't the first person who said it, but I think it, 
it wasn't even said directly, but uh, in in context of the statement, it, it had meaning. Uh, I was powerlifting, and this is after I had read. I, I don't know. I had pulled seven twenty-five or seven fifty or something like like that. Um, no belt. Essentially wearing a singlet, so a long, pretty much wearing nothing but long underwear. Um, and I was talking to Dan John because I had been dabbling in Highland Games too. And I made it up to A-class pretty easy. And uh, I was talking to him about that. Yeah, I'll maybe go pro, but I'm also wanting to go for this 800 deadlift and <clears throat> this and that. Um, and Dan just said, he said, Phil, there's plenty of really bad Highland. There's plenty of, maybe not really bad. There's plenty of poor Highland Games throwers. There's only a handful of people that have ever pulled 780 from the floor uh with nothing but a belt he said chase that first you know and looking back how i looked that on on and it was something that i had to face early on i think a lot of people face this especially now um it's like, like I, i've said before uh and i don't remember who i got this from the whole uh the man who chases more than one rabbit goes home hungry uh type of thing basically find that one goal and go for it uh, and people really have a problem now, like giving themselves permission to just concentrate on one thing, like one sport. Like it takes a very special kind of person to dedicate a decade to Olympic weightlifting or dedicate a decade to running the hundred yard, you know, or hundred, hundred meters or, uh, any single event or, or, or discipline like powerlifting, Olympic lifting, uh, hell, boxing, you know, anything like that, um, and not dabble in other things at the same time, like really give your full undivided attention to one single goal for a long period of time. Um, that's probably the best, best advice I've ever got. And I mean, all the great people, I think in any sport and the hell in life, you know, uh, they have that quality to them and they really dove into and like okay i'm going to concentrate on just this like i'm going to concentrate on molecular biology with this concentration um and become the best ever at that um that is a quality that i really look up to in people and that's that's where you know i have this i really look up to, to sport athletes that are like single-minded and they can like go for that daily grind like okay the next four years is concentrated on this olympics and i'm just gonna clean and jerk and snatch or you know it's just and literally for the next four years that's all they freaking do it, it takes a you got to be a little nuts and uh that's impressive to me and that's probably the best advice i got was uh give yourself permission to like suck at some other things to be great at, at one thing What's some of the best advice you have ever received? It's a really good question, and my answer actually isn't related necessarily to fitness, but it is. Uh, as most of you know, I'm a huge music fan, like mostly the more heavier metal stuff, but I've got probably about 1,400 CDs from all sorts of bands, from old school hip-hop to I guess old school alternative back when it was actually alternative to some newer stuff to a lot of metal, black metal, death metal, industrial, such on. 
So when I was in uh, Michigan Tech doing my master's, I worked at a radio station and DJed uh, a show there and was a director of Loud Rock. The nice part was I was able to, when we could make it down to the cities, which is about an eight hour drive, uh, do a fair amount of interview with different bands. Uh, one of the bands that I interviewed early on was a band called Typo Negative. Uh, lead singer was Peter Steele, who unfortunately passed away uh, several years ago. And at the time, Peter didn't do a whole lot of interviews. I uh, never really did a lot of interviews. was super nice guy, but pretty quiet. And the interview got set up with the guitar player, Kenny, who's actually way more quiet than Peter was. So we get on the bus, and there's Peter Steele just sitting there eating cookies. And he's like, oh, hey guys, how's it going? And that, you know, you get that kind of fanboy moment where you're trying completely not to to freak out and you're trying to play it cool, but I'm sure I didn't. So we go through, do the interview, and, you know, at the time looking back, I'm like, oh, I'm sure I asked him this, <clears throat> the same questions that everybody else has already asked him. But you know, both of them are super nice. I think Kenny didn't even say one word the whole time. And one of the things I... I asked Peter, I said, well, we are talking about different types of, of music and what they listen to. And I asked him, I said, well, what is something you look for and admire? And his answer was, he said, anything that's passionate. He's like, even, you know, bands that people would not expect them to listen to. You know, if the artist is really into it, he said, a lot of times that he'll find it's very interesting just from that standpoint and then actually turns out he likes a lot of the music and I was thinking that he was going to give me some type of you know genre or this band or that band and his answer kind of stuck with me and I think at least from a live music standpoint I mean, everybody's been to a show where you're watching the performers and you're like huh it just kind of looks like they're getting paid and they're just kind of going through the motions and they've also had experience where a lot of times they go to a show and it's like, wow, you can tell that, you know, all the performers just really want to be there and they're super excited about it and that's what they love doing. And consequently, pretty much every single time, those shows are much better, um, even if they have, you know, other technical problems and things that happen. So that answer, again, has always stuck with me. And even for you know, looking at, I know people who hire trainers and facilities, uh, usually that's like one of their first things is people skills and passion. I said, we can always teach them the more quote unquote mechanical type skills. Um, but if they're not passionate and they're not initially wanting to work with people on a one-on-one -on -one basis, uh, it's going to be pretty hard. So that's something that I kind of stuck with me and I, I look for in other areas. And what I've noticed just in trainers over the course of being in the industry for quite a while is that people who I saw initially, one guy in particular springs to my mind who's been in the industry for 15 years. I first heard of him when he first got started and he had a quote from anatomy that was like just completely wrong. And I'm like, who the hell is this guy? And can't even, you know, get basic anatomy correct. But fast forward several years, I kept watching his videos and I'm like, 
damn, this guy's like pretty passionate. He's, you know, opening gyms, he's training people. I'm like, that's pretty cool to see. And then fast forward through several other years, I was like, wow, he's actually got a lot of really good information um, just across the board. And what I found was that I think his passion drove him to acquire better knowledge. I don't necessarily think the inverse works true, that you can be super intelligent about things, but if you're not passionate, you're not going to go that sort of extra mile and just spend the time that it takes uh, to be really good. So that's my advice on that. All right, let's move on uh, to personal habit. Uh, for myself, maybe this is more of a character trait, but tenacity, uh, people almost snicker, my wife does, because I'm tenacious about things. I can't let something go until I sort of get it right uh, or throw myself into it, that sort of thing. I think that's how you get meaning is you throw yourself in, into something. Um, but that's more of a, a trait, I guess. I think as far as habit, it's um, a striving for balance. Like what I do at work in the classroom or the lab uh, gets balanced with what I do at home. Uh, just trying to take a bite out of life, like this road trip weekend we just did for you know, charity and things like that. The gym is very important. In many ways, the gym is like coming home, just getting your hands back on a barbell and that sort of thing. Um, so balance uh, is very important. I talked about owning it, right? And own the whole package, become comfortable in your skin. Uh, but that's, I think that's a personal habit that I have uh, that helps me a lot is I'm always striving for a sense of balance. Like take the time to refresh, whether it's meditation or home life or whatever it is. Um, even if you want to focus and be really good at a particular thing, balance, I think, is always going to come into play. So let's go to Phil and Mike and see what they say. My personal habit that led to my success. I would say, this is going to sound more weird, but living very minimally. For a long time there, I had like very little stuff. Not like I sold everything off. Uh, when I decided to go to school and stuff like that, I mean, I sold trucks, I sold blah, blah, blah. Basically, I had just, just what it took to live. Um, and the reason I say that, and I still kind of live that way, but uh, the reason I say that was the biggest contributor to my success is that gave me the ability to pick up and go at any minute um, when opportunity showed itself. Um, so I was like, when I lived in the East Coast for two and a half years, and then from there, Thailand for a year, from there, Montana, um, numerous trips all over the place uh, to, to stay with and, and visit coaches and go to seminars and, uh, you know, then out to Phoenix for three years and then up to Northern California where I was able to train with some great people. Uh, so living minimally allowed me the ability to pick up and go at a minute's notice, like literally everything I owned could fit in my truck. And I, so living minimally and having the balls to just go for it. Uh, I, you know, lack of being scared to just dive in head first and okay, I'm going to go learn that, it, that is probably the single contributor to my success 
from numerous ways. I mean, I learned a lot, and the networking was huge, and the friends I've I've built uh, across the strength community is huge. You know, I've been able to learn from great you know, throwers, Olympic lifters, power lifters, uh, things like that, crossing disciplines and learning what I can from each discipline to, to help in others. So. For a personal habit that contributes to my success, it's probably a double-edged sword, but I would say the ability to work and get stuff done because I've kind of always had to do that. And I think that's definitely, there's a time and a place to, you know, grind things out and hustle and all those words I tend to get kind of tired of hearing. And yeah, there's going to be a time if you're trying to run a gym or you're, you know, doing other things, you want to go back and in my case, get a advanced degree. So when I was doing my PhD, I was actually working part-time for a medical device company. I was still training some people on the side. I got married during that time. All things that I would have not necessarily picked to do if I could, you know, quote-unquote, orchestrate the perfect timing, which doesn't exist. Um, but the ability to kind of work through those things, uh, be mindful of your energy and sort of time management, as much as I hate the word time management, uh, I think is extremely useful. And there are, you know, many times you're going to have to work hard and do things that may not necessarily be that fun, but if you have a certain goal in mind, that's a requirement. I think the flip side of that is, for myself, it's easy to fall into that habit that that becomes your mode of doing everything. Uh, so one thing I've been working on, especially over the past couple of years, even this is related to training too, is that it doesn't always necessarily have to be hard. Uh, one question I got, I think I might have stole this from Tim Ferriss or my buddy Mike Bledsoe is, uh, what does easy look like? So if you're setting up a training, I'm a big fan of using a fair amount of what's called eustress. So stress you can generally recover from relatively fast. So that kind of looks like higher frequency training, but not beating the shit out of yourself every day you go to the gym. Uh, so I'm a big fan of that for both uh, strength and even to some degree, I think hypertrophy. Again, there's a time and a place for, for everything, just depends on your goal and what can you do. Um, so now what I'm working on related to that, and I'm grateful that I have that skill set, and there's, again, times where you spend long days and do a whole bunch of stuff, and yeah, I think that's going to be a part of the journey. The catch is, can you transition out of that so that that doesn't become your lifestyle? Uh, so one thing I realized this past, uh, probably nine months ago, is a sort of blinding flash of the obvious is that I was equating how hard and how much effort I put into something as sort of a monetary value, right? So if I would do a project, in my head I realized I was unconsciously basically sending out the, the price of it based on how hard it was for me to do. And the reality is it should be almost the inverse of that. So once you have a skill set that you enjoy and you're good at, which I think is a good intersection, it's probably gonna be more easy for you. So for example, for me, finding some specific types of research, consulting on different projects, you know, especially some that overlap from kind of more the engineering and fitness side with the heart rate variability and metabolism stuff, that 
that stuff in general for me is relatively easy but it's a little more of a unique skill set that a lot of other people don't have so for them trying to kind of piece that together is going to be more difficult and one thing I realized then is okay so if that's true then it should be based on the result of what I can provide now much how much time that I put into it and the fact that it is easier for me and it is something that I enjoy is a thing that I should be doing more of. So now I get to provide a higher value you know, to the world by working on my unique genius or unique ability, whatever word you want to use associated with it. And it's a win-win for everyone. Okay, sweet. Uh, internet resource. I personally, I already offered that Arnold six rules if you want to get philosophical. If you want to... Uh, go somewhere where the facts are. Uh, something that I learned as an undergrad was uh, look at peer-reviewed literature. You can go to the National Library of Medicine. So just simply Google PubMed. Now you have to be cautious because one study, one new paper should not change your whole lifestyle or practice. But the peer-reviewed stuff is so much better than the opinionated stuff you get in lay books and magazines. Now opinion pieces are interesting, but opinion... Even expert opinion is the weakest form of evidence, and we need to base our training and eating and all kinds of things on evidence. And peer-reviewed, of course, I, most of you know, it's getting your uh, – if you're going to publish a study, uh, you get it sort of beyond fact-checked. You have people of your level or higher sort of tugging at their chin, uh, scowling over their glasses, and trying to essentially see if you did anything stupid. And if there's fatal flaws, papers get rejected. Now, peer review gets can sometimes be abused in different ways. It's not perfect, but it's really one of the best things we have. So going to PubMed or Medline, even if you don't understand a lot of the equipment that's used or some ridiculous uh, high-end statistical, you know, mathematical gymnastics that are going on, you can usually go to the bottom of the paragraph and at least inform yourself. The researchers will say, given all of these factors, we conclude that. And that's where the gold nugget is. That's something that I learned when I was quite young. So I would say go to peer-reviewed, you know, again, beyond fact-checked, uh, National Library of Medicine. It's going to really help so long as you uh, acknowledge any limitations you might have or that the study might have uh, and base your uh, some of your decisions on review papers and whatnot that you can start to read there. Tips I can give on internet resources. Oh, the internet is a <laughs> an odd mix of of awesomeness and not so awesomeness. Uh, crap. the The problem is it gives a lot of people. A really 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 loud voice that shouldn't have one at all um, yeah, the good thing is it gives people that should it, it gives that opportunity for them to the problem is for the most part I think a lot of the people that should have a really loud voice are too busy actually doing amazing things to, <laughs> to have a loud voice on the internet um, now that's not all of them but uh you know, I think uh, I think a, a lot of times your quietest people that aren't putting out an article every week or uh, 
posting 10,000 fitness tips on the internet weekly. Uh, they're not doing it because they're actually living the life and helping people kick ass. Um, so I think the internet, uh, it, it gives you that ability to search, uh, search out people that are actually successfully making people kick ass, if that's what you're looking for. Um, and it, it gives the ability to search out information on nutrition and training, um, through credible resources easier than ever before. I mean, 20 years ago, uh, we had magazines and things like that, and it was much harder to, uh, to reach out. But I mean, even, even my own background, it's the internet made a lot of it that available. That's how I was able to get a hold of all the people I went and visited and learned from, um, was through the, you know, we first met on the, the World Wide web and the old AOL dial up, you know, and, uh, <laughs> then I went and checked it out, uh. But uh, I don't know. I mean, it, I always say this. I mean, I don't. I can't speak for some of these sites now and their ability. But I mean, like T Nation has one of the greatest archives ever. Um, if you start from like ten years ago and work backwards, or start at the beginning, work forward to about ten years ago, um, there's some great stuff on there um, by people who are actually doing it and living it. Um, great strength coaches all around the world uh you know guys putting up huge totals that were actually you know they're living it and now now not so much i mean you see a lot of uh, there's a lot of internet stars and youtube stars that are you know that in my opinion shouldn't have as big a voice as they do but whatever um that it gives you the ability to search locally who who is creating the athletes by you that are kicking ass okay go see them um you know i'd say that's the best way to use the internet now um even if it's via social media you can reach out to these people and say hey i want to learn something can you teach me <laughs> and search out good articles you know pubmed whatever um you can find digital download books for fairly cheaply and things like that and easily you know it wasn't that easy to find a, a good book on periodization and whatever you know back in the day so uh that that'd probably be the best thing in my opinion it does you just got to watch out you have to have a pretty good bullshit radar so my super short internet resource tip is just do your homework uh, don't believe everything that you see online again this is pretty obvious as best you can check your sources or i know expert opinion is lower in terms of evidence but many times that's the best that we're going to get for a short amount of time. So I'd say choose your quote-unquote experts uh, carefully. Everything they say doesn't necessarily have to be right or you find out is correct. But it's probably a relatively good start if you don't have too much time. You know, for myself, there's a reason I have a financial advisor. I just emailed a question to yesterday and he came back with a great answer. Now, should I probably double-check that with someone else? Maybe, but in essence, I'm paying him for his expert opinion, and we all have a limited amount of time during the day, and sometimes we have to just be okay with that. So I'd say just be careful of the sources that you take information from, and then make sure to test that out on yourself and monitor your results. All right, last up here, um, what fires you up? 
I'll share mine, and then we'll go to Phil and Mike, and then we'll close out for the week, and we'll see you next time. But let's do this one first. Uh, what fires you up? I think this is probably obvious to people who look at sort of lifespan development and that sort of thing. Uh, people tend to move from self-actualization, you know, self-improvement, physical, mental, etc., and into helping others, That you know, that kind of phase. That is true, right? So uh, I feel like I've gotten uh, my young competition years out of my way, sort of under my belt. I'm happy about that. I'm satisfied about it. I like to help other people and the community by giving back, right? That's what Iron Radio is about. That's why we've done this every single week for nearly nine years, um, giving back. So if if I make a discovery with students in the lab or just reporting on other ones, uh, so people don't, you know, run into the same problems and roadblocks that, that I did, uh, that sort of thing. So giving back, I think, is the big thing that has a lot of meaning for me. That kind of harkens back to the Arnold's six rules uh, idea. Um, but also, I think on a personal development side, I'm not just giving up on myself. That's ridiculous. I'm really getting my thrown into other aspects of uh, food and nutrition that I haven't before. Some of the coffee research and the entrepreneurial aspects of that are fascinating. So long as I always keep in mind, it's about giving back and having the greatest impact uh, rather than some kind of personal gain, something along those lines. So Let's go to the other two guys, and afterwards, we'll fade out and see you next week. So first, Phil. What gets me fired up now? Um, seeing other people succeed. I really get, I get more fired up now, I think, seeing my lifters uh, do things than I do myself. Um, not that I don't love, you know, I love going for, I still have this <laughs> love to, uh, you know, get under a big heavy squat bar or uh, go for a huge deadlift or anything like that. Um, but I see myself as I get in my ripe old age, I'm leaning more towards, I'm getting more and more joy out of helping others uh, succeed and do those things and hopefully surpass anything I've ever done. Um, it's amazing watching people um, be able to reach more than they've ever done. Uh, and I, that gets me fired up. When, you know, when I had my first girl squad 405 uh, and things like that and seeing how excited they get, I get excited through their excitement. And, uh, you know, okay, it's time for the lift. Smack them on the back. Um, let's get this, you know, and seeing that uh all that hard work um all the programming all the months and months come to that one moment and uh see it happen or not happen you know it, it's that gets me fired up uh if they fail it gets me fired up what do we need to do what do we got to fix um so that i mean is probably the biggest thing that gets me fired up now more than anything um like seeing right now my wife's coming back and she's going to get ready to compete again. Seeing her get amped up again. Um, getting her training going. Uh, hell, women now are crazy. <laughs> uh, seeing how strong they're getting. You know, we've got an army of strong ladies. And, uh, yeah, it's just seeing other people kick ass. And that drives me. That pushes me. Um, seeing my guys 
go for you know we got one guy getting ready to get squat 900 um that gets me fired up you know so all right so what fires me up now oh man there's all sorts of stuff which is a good thing so one thing i've been fascinated about for quite some time and we've talked on the show it's kind of the systems approach to exercise and performance so for example when i write online uh, programs for my clients there's a tab that has exercise nutrition uh, lifestyle accountability and it's it's kind of all of those things so pretty much everybody will have something in each one of those blocks and then we've got a monitoring block which is maybe heart rate variability or just how they feel or performance so I'm very fascinated on a higher level how all those things fit together and I think it's very easy to take too much of a just pure reductionist standpoint and it's hard to then take that and extrapolate the results from that back to a very uh, complicated system so I think the more you kind of look at the human body as a whole that'll be beneficial and then for me what is sort of the operating system of that what are the principles that the body is running on if you can look at those then you can get an idea of what might be going on I think that's a faster route than doing the reductionist point of view on every mechanism and there's a time and place for that and definitely we need that information there's people who spend their whole research for life just looking at mechanisms of mTOR1, and that's awesome. By all means, we need to understand those things and to learn more about them. But for myself, I find the interaction at a higher level, you know, all those things to be fascinating, and then trying to go down to the mechanism level uh, only when needed. Uh, so that's the training. Um, Working on trying to lift the Thomas Inch Dumbbell. So I've got a 100-pound replica that I've been playing with, which has been going pretty good. Probably work back into some more Denny Stone stuff at the end of the year. And right now, I've just been doing more of a metabolic kind of conditioning uh, block, uh, working with uh, Aaron Davis. So shout out to him, Train, Adapt, Evolve. Done some stuff with the Moxie sensor, just trying to look at uh, oxygen kinetics. How well can you kind of load oxygen? How well can you desaturate or pull oxygen off at the muscle level? So that I've been kind of fascinated with going down that rabbit hole. And then of course the standard things lifestyle wise, which for me is primarily kiteboarding for recreational activity. Pretty stoked to be going down to South Padre for a couple of weeks actually in November. Hoping to get out of here locally once I'm actually back home and do more of that. So that's it. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store, one for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry, and they're thematic. So you can go into our halls of iron store and choose based on your goal if you need something to learn or read or something nutritional you can look in my store uh, Lonnie's store if you want something about injury prevention 
uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.